Welcome. Welcome, lovely listeners, to this, the first full-length episode of the Soccer Capital Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Turner, and with me on the boards is our producer, Mason. Hello, everyone. Very happy to be joining you again today. And uh, we're very happy, I'm very happy you're all with us as well, as I'm very happy Mason's with me as well. And uh, today we'll be talking about the U.S. men's national team. They had a friendly against Switzerland. We'll also be covering the uh, UEFA Champions League matchup that starred Americans Christian Pulisic and Zach Steppen. Only one made the field, as I'm sure you're all aware. And also have a little update on uh, U.S. Soccer Federation's break with Sports United Marketing. Just go over that very briefly so everyone knows what it is. But first of all, let's get the important parts. This was Memorial Day weekend, and uh, how was your weekend, Mason? Do you enjoy any of this soccer? Uh, well, I did see the friendly. I unfortunately missed out on the UEFA final, but uh, I suppose that's why you're here. Yes, and uh, for those that do not know, a little catch-up, Mason is actually new as a soccer fan. Uh, he's been a uh, hockey fan for many years, and but he's playing catch-up and go. How's the... Uh, How's the learning experience ramping up going for you? Well, I have at least watched soccer before. I have, uh, I was following uh, St. Louis FC, the USL side, for about the last two or three years before they folded uh, around the announcement of St. Louis City's expansion. Um, did actually manage to see them play live in the U.S. Open Cup against the Chicago Fire. That was the first soccer game I think I had ever seen. Well, you picked a good one, didn't you? I certainly did. It was very exciting to see a USL side hold an MLS team to just one goal. And the atmosphere made me fall in love with the game. I certainly fell in love with the atmosphere, and I tried to follow the game as much as I could. But, you know, it was hard to find people showing it. <laughs> yes, and uh, you're much younger than I. Not to show my age, but I actually uh, had my first experience with soccer and I believe it was the 1978 World Cup match that uh, West Germany won. And uh, then I got uh, involved in the sport and went through a good 25-year process of never finding it anywhere. Luckily now, in the United States, we went from having no soccer coverage to about the best soccer coverage in the entire world. If so you're willing to stay up until 6 in the morning, that is. Or wake up at 6 in the morning if you want the English Premier League, which... I've often done. <laughs> but anyway, getting to what we're here for is to have a little talk about our U.S. men's national team. Uh, yes, they did travel to Switzerland. That was on Saturday, I believe. And by the way, we are recording this on Tuesday, June 1st. Uh, it is far and away the uh, most difficult opponent that the U.S. men have been able to schedule in well over a year, mostly due to the uh, pandemic. And just uh, the way that uh, international soccer goes with so many localized tournaments going on, which the uh, U.S. will be involved in one of those, the CONCACAF Nations League, coming up uh, later this week and over the weekend. But uh, they went to Switzerland. They played the 13th ranked team in the world, according to FIFA. Uh, for comparison, the U.S. is ranked 20th. And uh, it was a friendly, so you know, an exhibition game. Uh, U.S. lost 2-1 to one to Switzerland in this. Uh, a lot of people were disappointed in the play of the U.S. team. I wasn't necessarily disappointed. kind of went to expectations. Results don't really matter in an international friendly. 
but you do get an idea of what they're trying to play or what they're playing around with, which might be more accurate. Uh, what you saw over the weekend will not necessarily be what you see coming up in a real game on Thursday in the semifinals of a tournament. Uh, it started off quite well for the U.S. men. In the first half, uh, they had a high press, seemed to have taken the Swiss a little off guard. U.S. was winning the ball, and uh, they scored about, what, four minutes into the game when uh, they got the ball into the box. It bounced around. I believe it was Brendan Aronson gave a little pass back to uh, Sebastian Legette, who was in the proper place, and he knocked it home for the first goal. Somewhat lucky, uh, but he was he was alert, and he was there, and he stuck the landing, so to speak. It was so, a, but yeah, that was a it was a good heads up play in the box. Uh, the ball was just pinballing around in there, um, but it was a a good quick little pass uh, to Legette, and he just hammered it home. It you know it was a smart play, a reaction play, and you know they get they get one in the back of the net. And uh, with the uh, offensive look of the lineup that we had uh, for the U.S. men. Uh, even without Christian Pulisic, who was, of course, probably nursing a hangover after winning the Champions League with Chelsea the day before. Neither he or Stefan were available because they just played a game, of course. Uh, and uh, also a little iffy on some of the timelines on this because uh, I did set the DVR to watch it again. Unfortunately, ESPN's coverage on TV ran over 30 minutes into the game because they had a college softball game ran over. And uh, have a little bit more on that a little later in the show. Uh, really, soccer Twitter was all up in arms about this, and rightfully so. I was a little miffed too. It's unfortunate when that happens, but it's it's kind of par for the course with ESPN coverage. You know, especially especially a baseball or a softball game, they run long, and there's not a whole lot you can really do about that. Well, ESPN could they could clear the schedule, but we'll we'll talk about that later on in the show. Now, starting out in the game, uh, the U.S. looked uh, offensive, and I mean that in a positive way. Uh, also, they had a nice half, uh, high press that uh, had the Swiss back on their heels. They were having trouble breaking the press, and the U.S. was able to get the ball into decent areas, though they were really lacking on the killer pass to add to their lead. Now, one problem with the high press is that if you get broken, you better be able to recover defensively. Uh, U.S. was doing very well early on with the press and getting a lot of turnovers, but a couple of times they did get broken, and it caused problems, especially in a, somewhere around the 10th minute when they broke them. Uh, Sergio Des didn't cover his man. Nice pass across to uh, Ricardo Rodriguez, who was able to get a deflection off of a attempted block by uh, Reggie Cannon, and it bounced past uh, even Horthat right into the goal, tied the game up at one. Kind of unfortunate, I believe, that Horvath had that covered, but uh, the block by Cannon knocked it in. It was on frame, so it does count as uh, not an own goal. Not that any of those stats matter in a friendly. Uh, unfortunate, but uh, U.S. recovered pretty nicely from this. They kept up the press. Uh, Switzerland was having trouble dealing with that to a certain extent, and uh, the U.S. was holding possession for a good part of the first half. And if you've followed the U.S. men's national team for a while, seeing a U.S. men's team actually holding possession, passing it around, though not necessarily very incisive passing, but passing around and holding possession and not always on their back foot defending, is not something we've 
seen very often at all, especially playing on European soil. So that was a positive thing from the team. They were, however, missing that final bit. Had uh, St. Louis's own Josh Sargent uh, up front in the striker role. I was not impressed with him. He did have a header that was skillfully broken up or impeded by a Swiss defender uh, that went meekly over the top of the goal, though it did force a save from the goalkeeper in that case. But for the most part, he's making runs. He was there, but he didn't really impress in this game. Yeah, I kind of tend to agree. Uh, the only time he was really dangerous was that header that got broken up. Um, it was impressive to see him still put it on frame after being broken up on that play, but that was about the most dangerous he was. Uh, when Switzerland did have possession in the U.S. half, the U.S. seemed to be set up fairly well against them on the defensive end. But uh, when they had the high press, you were seeing players like John Brooks out by the... Uh, the half-court stripe, so to speak, uh, which is somewhere he shouldn't be, because once the press gets broken, John Brooks is not the most athletic defender. He's the best defender center, center back that the U.S. have, but he was not particularly quick in getting back on those. And with everybody up front, Serginio Dest was driving down that same side well into Switzerland's half. So when they broke the press or they got on the break, the U.S. was wide open. It was kind of frightening, uh, but the U.S. held the possession for much of the first half. Uh, Switzerland did break them down, get them shook up a little bit in about the 40th minute of the game. And uh, Switzerland got the ball in the box, looked like they were trying to make a uh, cross into the box, and the ball happened to hit Serginio Dest on the hand. Immediately, the referee called for a handball on the play. And, of course, there's no video assistant review because it's a friendly why would they do that? Uh, the hand was close to his body. The ball was close to him when it was shot. Pretty soft penalty. This was, I think, not a good call. Um, I think that had they had VAR, which, like you said, would seem very silly for a friendly, it, um, it would have been reviewed, and I think it would have been waved off. But, you know, considering that... Considering that it's a friendly and uh, that VAR wasn't present, the penalty stood. It stood. But uh, fortunately for uh, the U.S. and not for Switzerland, uh, the aforementioned uh, Rodriguez took the penalty, had a short run-up, got a little cute, and pulled the penalty wide right. Ball don't lie. That's right. As they say in the NBA, ball don't lie. So what happened is, played out the rest of the half, went in, uh, tied at 1-1. Decent half for the U.S., especially against a good team in Europe. Maybe one of the better showings I've seen in a long time for the U.S. in Europe against a pretty full squad of a tough opponent. One thing we did miss without the incisiveness, uh, Christian Pulisic may have actually been able to give us more of a cutting offensive presence when they had so much of the possession. So much of it was passed around. There was some good runs, there was some good crosses, but nothing ever came of it. Also, even Horvath getting the shot at goalkeeping because Zach Zeffen was out because of uh, the Champions League final, he was very good. He was impressive. Brendan Aronson also got a chance to start in this game, and uh, he showed what he showed at Red Bull Salzburg. He looked good. He was incisive. He played well in that half. 
and he was on the ball a lot. And he's getting fouled a lot. That shows kind of how things were going there. But definitely in the first half, it was Legette that was the best player on the team, uh, given the goal, but he was also the scariest. Uh, Giovanni Reina also was good in holding the ball and putting the ball in the box. So all in all, it was pretty positive for the U.S., getting beaten on the break and uh, getting back in defense. That was a problem for them. Now, as we head into the second half, uh, early on in the half, uh, Reina did get a nice ball into the box. He had it. He was covered, but he did a quick turn, got a quick shot off, and hit the outside of the post. The goalkeeper for Switzerland was frozen. If he could have got it more on frame, U.S. may have been ahead at this point, uh, especially getting away with the uh, missed penalty by Switzerland. He really only missed that shot by, what, six inches? Because yeah. if he had hit the inside of that post, I think that would have been bar, like off the bar and possibly in or you know recovered for a good rebound. Because like you said, the, the Swiss goalie was frozen. Um, yeah, he did not miss that shot by much, and it was very dangerous. And it was definitely the uh, U.S.'s best chance uh, that they had on goal since they scored the goal in the fourth minute of the game. Now, coming in the second half, Switzerland is a veteran team. The core of this team, and a lot of them, have been playing at some of the top clubs in Europe for years. They've also had the core of their group together playing internationally for four or more years. The U.S. has hardly played together with their A team. As a matter of fact, their first pick lineup has never played together yet under Greg Berhalter, mostly because of the problems with COVID, traveling across the ocean, and injuries, which is always a big deal. Uh, their defender, their best defender, Tyler Adams, unable to play. He hurt his back late in the season playing for um, RB Leipzig in the Bundesliga. Uh, he's not available. No word as of recording time if he'll be available for the Nations League. I'm not counting on him. And it's a big miss. Now, with the veteran team, Switzerland went in. They had their coach for a long time. They went in the halftime, saw what the U.S. was doing, Players knew what that was going on. They reset a little, and they came out, and they were able to start breaking the press. They got more of the ball. They didn't look as uh, shaky as they had before, and uh, it was starting. the U.S. was starting to get more and more disjointed. Uh, oftentimes, what it was was uh, Serginio Dest is a very exciting 19-year-old attacking. He was on the uh, left quarterback in this game. He was up the field very deep, very goal dangerous, and uh, very dangerous when he had the ball on the offensive end, but he left a wide gap on the defensive end. Switzerland saw that, they adjusted, they started an attack in that space that he left behind, over and over and over. They were starting to show their quality, so to speak, and their maturity. So much so, and uh, Switzerland's Mbolo was very dangerous, make it run into those areas. He was left unmarked in midfield. Debates over whether it was actually uh, Mark McKenzie or uh, Jackson Ewell, who was taking Tyler Adams' place, whether he should have been marked. But he was left to run free towards the U.S. goal. Uh, Horvath, who was very good throughout, came out, cut down the angles, and had a painful face save on that one. But it just showed what was going on in the game. Uh, in the 62nd minute, Dest gets left in between, makes a weak deflection. Tim Ream is on the game at this point as the subs start coming in the second half. He was very slow to react, 
left them uh, left his mark wide open, and uh, deflection led to uh, the second Swiss goal. Uh, it just showed what was going on. The score was now one one two to Switzerland. And after this point, that was in about the 62nd minute to 67th, you start seeing the scrubs. Well, I won't say scrubs. The subs coming on. Uh, six changes allowed in a friendly. Uh, the team gets all set. And the U.S. looked very disjointed after this. Wor working very well. They weren't communicating well up to this point. But it really seemed to fall apart here. Meanwhile, Switzerland brought in some more veteran talent off the field. They got their shape together, and they really bossed this until the end of the game. The only chance I see very late, the U.S. Uh, Tim Weah was on, got a ball over the top. He had a shot on goal. It was a good look, but that was by far the best U.S. had. Switzerland couldn't convert. They really were running ragged in the defensive end of the U.S. team, and they could have very easily won this 4-1. It's very hard to say that Switzerland should have won this 4-1 or 4-2. If they take advantage of their opportunities, the U.S. could have in the first half and made it a tighter game. The 2-1 result, as it ended, to Switzerland does seem about right. As I said, the U.S. had issues. They had things to work on. Their press was very high, and they kept at it all the time. It was effective in the beginning. Adjustments weren't made to correct or back off of that when Switzerland figured it out. Those are things you have to work on. That's why you play these friendlies. As we get into this, uh, some of the takeaways from the game is, uh, well, let me ask you, Mason, who was your so-called man of the match for the U.S., the, the player that impressed you the most throughout the game? It was Horvath. Um, he, especially considering that uh, I did not know this when I was watching it, I found it out about halfway through when you told me, but um, he was not the, he's not the usual starter for the for the national team. Um, I thought that um, he was very impressive. You know, he led. He conceded two goals, but he was challenged. He was challenged early, and he was challenged often. And um, like you had uh, talked about with those uh, Mbolo uh, attacks, um, he did a really good job of coming in there, cutting on angles, um, making himself big in front of the in front of the goal, and doing his job basically. Yeah, I was also very impressed by Ethan Horvath. He's not even a regular starter for his club team, Preston to duty here. And uh, I think most observers were very keen on seeing how well he played, considering not much was thought of him coming in. He played the sweeper-keeper role well. Uh, he, unlucky on the uh, deflection for the first Swiss goal, he was really the, the impressive player. I was also impressed with uh, Brendan Aronson in the first half getting a run out with the uh, main U.S. team. He was lively. He was involved. He was making things happen on the offensive end. Not so much in the second half, but in the first half he definitely was. Uh, one thing, though, I did notice is that uh, when he's on the same side with uh, Des, whoever he's with, he comes into the center. Then the ones on the outside, they also like to come in the center, especially Reyna and Aronson when they're matched up on the same side. It left the U.S. shape kind of narrow and uh, didn't get a way to stretch out the back line of Switzerland, which may have opened up more opportunities to score in that first half when the U.S. was in possession a lot in that first half and really looked to be equal to Switzerland early on. Uh, like I said, Aronson's influence did fade in the second half, the U.S. did not have a very good second half at all. 
Uh, Mark McKenzie, not the usual starter, but uh, very much with a wide open spot in that back center back row since the usual choice, Aaron Long of um, New York Red Bulls, hurt his Achilles. He's out all year. He won't even be there for a World Cup qualifying. We're not expecting. That's a big loss. McKenzie did a, had a good show. Tough situation with the high line. If I had one thing to bring back is when they're pu pushing John Brooks so far up, he's not as athletic. That's not his strength. Needed McKenzie to be more in the back. Needed uh, especially Reggie Cannon on the uh, as the cornerback in this system to also cover. Wasn't done very well. So that's something that I'm sure Burhalter will see in the tapes and work on. Uh, like I said, having John Brooks come out to midfield with the high line in the press uh, left the U.S. wide open. He's the best defender by the box. He's also very good at getting the ball out of trouble as well with his passing. Uh, he just seemed out of sorts, left, left hung out to dry in many cases by his uh, teammates in this game. Another one, uh, Jackson Ewell got the start in that uh, holding midfielder row that usually is signed by Tyler Adams. Ewell's problem is that it's not figured to be as athletic as Adams by far, but he actually did a good job on the defensive side. He was better up the field in the press. But one reason why he's in the squad is because of his passing ability to hit the long diagonals a la Michael Bradley. Uh, but his passing was very conservative in this game. And uh, that didn't show. Perhaps he was focused too much on the defensive effort. We'll see how that goes. See if uh, Kellen Acosta gets a bigger run out in Thursday's game against Honduras. Yeah, this might be a gut feeling, but uh, I I felt like there was a lot of conservative building, building out of the back. There were not a lot of stretch passes from the U.S., from anybody, really. But um, especially if that is kind of his strength, didn't really put it on dis on display there. Yes, and when they were in position, uh, possession a lot in the first half, one thing that we did see is the pace of play was really kind of slow. Uh, one thing I've seen with Giovanna Reyna, he's a very exciting young prospect, but he's very young. It appears that he was clearly the best in his age group growing up because he likes to hold on to the ball a lot and uh, try to make things happen. At this stage, I'd like to see his growth in using his ability and, uh, you know, being a starter for Borussia Dortmund, the other team's aware of him. It'd be more to see him be more involved in the play. The U.S. also, I saw when they tried to switch the field, there was poor communication. Oftentimes, the wide player was probably supposed to be the recipient of the pass, but somebody in the middle would come and take it. That's a focus of communication. It's also a focus that these teams, just the U.S. team, just hasn't played very much together. And the only thing that's going to make that happen is time and playing experience. And that's one reason why we had the Switzerland game in the first place. As well, uh, other things I looked at is maturity. The talent and the veteran experience of the Switzerland team really showed, especially in the second half. Talent-wise, they're strong. They've got a lot of players at some of the best clubs in Europe. So does the U.S. The thing is, a lot of their players that they have playing at the best clubs in Europe are 26, 27 years old, whereas the U.S. team is 18, 19, 20, 22. They've got a lot more experience. They've also played together more on the international stage, and it really showed in the second half as the coach, and especially the players, saw where the openings were, figured out the passing angles, and took advantage of that. This was 
as I mentioned earlier, a very good friendly for the U.S. to play at this point. They haven't had stiff competition at all lately. It was very good to play a team ranked 13th in the world on their soil in Europe. All in all, the U.S. had some issues. I thought they showed very well. Attacking-wise, this team has a lot of possibilities. Getting the final shot on the goal is going to be difficult. But defensively, they've got a lot to work on. Um, like, you know, we were playing against uh, against weaker competition, but uh, get, like, you, like you talked about their attacking potential, I think the stat was in the last five they had 25 goals for, which is an astounding number even for playing against weaker competition. And it was weak competition. You were looking at a depleted Jamaica team that couldn't make the trip because of COVID uh, problems. Uh, you had played in Northern Ireland against the B team. In that game, the U.S. didn't show that well. Shows how tough it is for them to play in a friendly and play well on European soil, which I thought they really improved upon that in this game. Uh, you know, the competition just was not good at all. But in the U.S. favor, unlike years past when they played these games, they really beat them up. So that was always good to see leading into this. It's just the competition was so low that it was really hard to get a good handle. Uh, again, this was just a friendly. The U.S. tried things. Hopefully they learned some things. They got tape to watch, and they're going to head now on Thursday against Honduras in a game that counts. Switzerland, this the Switzerland team, and the U.S. team for that matter, really played it like a friendly. There wasn't a whole lot of toughness. There wasn't hard hitting. That's not what we'll see from Honduras uh, coming up in the CONCACAF Nations League on Thursday. And there's not too much more to say about this game, actually. We'll find out more about this team, probably much more, on uh, Thursday's big game. So that wraps it up for our coverage of the U.S. Men's National Team Friendly against Switzerland. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk Christian Pulisic and the Champions League final, Chelsea against Manchester City, in just a moment. We'll see you on the other side. And we're back, lovely listeners. And now we're going to talk about the UEFA Champions League final between Manchester City and Chelsea. There's really one takeaway from this, and that would be Christian Pulisic. You ever heard of him, Mason? No. Everybody else has. So <laughs> let's talk about it. He came on in his planned second-half substitution role. A little disappointing for most American listeners, but uh, I think also expected. Thomas Tuchel has uh, chosen to use him is this super sub with his quickness and his pace and his divisiveness heading towards goal in a, a super sub role to take advantage of softened up and tiring defenses. We have talked about this off air. Uh, this is largely what my knowledge of Christian Pulisic is because I lied earlier, as you can imagine. Hershey bars. Um, <laughs> uh, but that uh, he comes off the bench um, in almost a kind of six-man role, like in the NBA. He comes he comes on as a, as a kind of late sub to to exploit a tired defense, kind of like you said, and um, you know to be in there to be, give a jolt to the offense. 
I don't think that he's entirely happy with that role, and I don't think that some American fans are either. Why but would he be? Yeah, but he seems very well suited for it. He seems to be very good at that job. Uh, apparently, Thomas Tuchel thinks that way. Uh, you know, they only paid $70 million to bring him in. He is one of the most frightening on-ball offensive, especially wingers, in all of the world. And, uh, but... When you are on a team like Chelsea with so much talent on it, there's really four with Mason Mount, Timo Werner, and uh, Kai Havertz on the team. you got four players for three positions. Somebody's going to be left out. Tuchel had him as his uh, player when Christian broke in at the age of 17. I think he's kind of mentally slotted him into that role. It's a little unfortunate, but he's very useful and definitely a world-class player. And he did come on in uh, around the 60th, 65th minute. Uh, I've lost my notes on this one. Uh, and he becomes the first U.S. men's national team player to play in a Champions League final. There was a couple of other Americans, or at least passport-holding Americans, that had played in the men's. And in the women's game, there's a list way too long to read. You'll hear a lot of people say it's the first American to play in the Champions League. Well, that's sexist and wrong. There's a long list of women who have played in the UEFA Champions League for their clubs in the past. Now, Chelsea won. Big shock to everyone. If you're just tuning in, uh, Chelsea won this 1-0 as uh, one of those aforementioned uh, attacking players, Mason Mount, gave a beautiful pass into Kai Havertz, who broke down the... Uh, Goalkeeper, Ederson for Manchester City, and went around him and scored the goal that ended up being the decisive play. In that, Ederson did handle the ball outside of his box. It was missed by the official, and perhaps under video review, they couldn't tell, or since the goal was scored, they let it go. But that would have been a red card for Ederson, which would have meant that the other American in the Champions League finals, Zach Steffen, would have come in the field as his replacement. Uh... So Chelsea won. Christian Pulisic, definitely the first American U.S. men's national team player to have won a Champions League final. Poor Zach Steffen got stuck with the, stuck with the second place medal, but I guess he can console himself being a Premier League winner. You know, it seems to be second place in the world's hearts these days. They only won the English Premier League, by the way. Uh, in this game, Christian Pulisic really had a chance to shine. It was out on the break. He gets the ball out on the uh, right wing. He's cutting into only the goalkeeper to beat, Ederson. But Ederson did a very good job of coming out, making himself large. Pulisic was able to get the ball over the top of him, but it went just wide. A lot of people in the soccer Twitter universe uh, called it a sitter, and how could he miss and all this. It was a very difficult chance. He did very well on it, was very divisive, showed his class and style, just didn't go into the goal, also gave credit to the opposing goalkeeper. The other big talking part from this game is uh, famed Manchester City manager Pep Guardiola doing what he's always done, is getting to a Champions League final with some of the best and greatest teams in European club football and deciding that he was going to win the game with some crazy lineup shift. In this case, he took off both 
of his defensive holding midfielders to go for offense to try to score early against Chelsea. Now they lost. And it was very apparent on the goal, but very apparent early on, that they weren't going to break down Chelsea's defense, and they were leaving themselves wide open in the back. This all being said, this was a very entertaining game. Uh, some people that like a lot of scoring might not think so, but uh, the play on the field was incredible. And uh, with everything that went on, Manchester City, late in the game, they're struggling. They look really frustrated. They look right desperate. And I was thinking, oh, they're going to be very dangerous. There were seven minutes of stoppage time. We'll get to why in just a moment. But there were seven minutes of stoppage time at the end of the game. Six minutes in, the ball bounces in the Chelsea half to Rian Morris, who chipped the shot at the goalkeeper. Wide open goal. He missed it by about a foot. It actually hit the top of the net. It wasn't earned by Manchester City, but that's what talent will do. But it didn't go in, and Chelsea won the game. Now, as to why there were seven minutes of stoppage time, Chelsea defender Rudiger had a challenge on a ball in the air with uh, Man City star Kevin De Bruyne, and uh, Rudiger put a shoulder into him, hit him in the face, broke his nose in his orbital bone, that also, this was in the second half, but it also really hurt any chances Manchester City had of getting back into the game because Chelsea's defense was so well set up by Thomas Tuchel, their coach, and Manchester City was having a hard time. Very hard time breaking them down. Very good play by Chelsea. To a man, they played extremely well. The tactics, the coaching before the game and how it was going to happen by Tuchel was spot on, and they earned this. They earned it against the much-favored Manchester City. So when we look at the match, uh, Mason, you saw some highlights. Uh, who would you pick as the man of the match in this game if you were voting? I'm not 100% sure. Havertz um, with the goal? Most, uh, that, that's, the, that's your gut feeling, right, when you're picking a man of the match. Um, you know, like, I, like, like I said earlier, I didn't get to see this one. Um, I only saw the highlights briefly. Um, it's, it's hard to say, um, but yeah, that would have to be my pick. Well, he was not it. It was actually, uh, midfielder Nagolo Conte of Chelsea, who was everywhere. This man is a wizard. Uh, he's a two-man midfield all by himself. He broke up play in the midfield from the, all that talent on Manchester City. When he broke up the play, he usually kept control got his team back, either let him break or held it up for the team to regain their shape. He was fantastic. He's been fantastic since he came over from the second tier of uh, France's Ligue 1 to Leicester City, won the Premier League with them and one of the greatest sporting seasons of all time. He's won the FA Cup. He's won the Premier League with Chelsea. He's won the World Cup with France. And now he's won the Champions League with Chelsea. This man is an incredible player. And if you're unaware of him, which you mostly likely are, you should be paying attention. Now, as we said, Christian Pulisic was on. He got to play. He had the news. And all I can imagine is that in every youth summer league out there, all the little kids are calling, I'm Pulisic, I'm Pulisic. And there's probably fisticuffs involved now. 
look at what you cost, Christian Pulisic. But uh, congratulations to you and Zach Steffen for doing things that we have really not experienced um, Americans doing in the past. And that's about all the coverage I have from the Champions League. Last thing I want to bring up is something that kind of slides under everybody's radar. And uh, in the past week, the U.S. Soccer Federation announced that they were no longer going to be associated with Soccer United Marketing, which is a marketing team developed by MLS, split off from MLS, that was put into place so that MLS could help assist U.S. soccer with marketing the national team because in the aughts, U.S. soccer had couldn't even sell the rights to World Cup and U.S. men's national team games. After all this time, it's worked very well for both of them. The growth of the game in this country is immense. and But now, I believe it's time to split. Now, Soccer United Marketing is split off from MLS. And the question now is, how is it going to affect MLS and the teams with their bottom line? Not much. Some information I have is that uh, they did bring in some revenue. It wasn't highly significant. MLS is actually doing okay marketing their own product. And especially when it breaks down team by team, the amount of dollars is going to be inconsequential. That's the first thing I thought of, but uh, find out that it's not going to be that important. Actually, if you want to learn more, if you're that interested, I highly recommend checking out the uh, Allocation Disorder podcast with Sam Stachel and uh, Paul Tenorhill. One question I did have about this is um, you mentioned that uh, that Soccer United marketing was split off from MLS. So is it fair to assume that they are an independent entity now, not attached to MLS? And also, uh, aside from what it means for MLS, what does this now mean for the international game being broadcast in the U.S.? Okay, uh, it's split off, but it still feeds a lot of revenue back to MLS. The nuts and bolts on that, how that works with you know corporate financing... Nothing. I do a soccer podcast. Uh, there's a lot of rev- there was revenue coming into MLS because of Sports United marketing, but it's they're now like a their own they spun off from MLS or MLS set up this corporation to run this. Now, what it means for U.S. soccer is that U.S. soccer can now negotiate their own rights with media rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Perhaps been coming because uh, when they had to do choose their last president, uh, a lot of the people on the board of U.S. soccer now have come from media marketing. As a matter of fact, I believe one, if not two, are from some Sports United marketing. One thing that this might do is not because some had packaged up the, the soccer federation with MLS into the rights packages, so like ESPN or Fox. If you buy into MLS and you get the rights to the game, you're also buying U.S. soccer or vice versa. It was a package deal. It was a package deal. Uh, it worked very well considering viewership for MLS games has not been the highest out there. It is improving. It, this year alone, it's improving quite well so far. Yeah. But it's really did help both. But perhaps... With the explosion of popularity of soccer in the U.S., was it necessary anymore? And one reason why it's good for U.S. soccer to have done this is was shown just this past uh, Saturday with the U.S. men's friendly, or uh, Sunday, excuse me, uh, 
with the friendly being delayed on ESPN 30 minutes because they didn't have a clear and open window for this game. The softball game ran over. ESPN was not clear where it was going to be shown. I kept saying ESPN3, which actually on most cable outlets will be noted as ESPNU. It was on ESPN app or ESPN Plus, but they didn't have it come on air at the time it was supposed to. As I mentioned, I couldn't rewatch the game for the first 30 minutes because I set my DVR. I got 30 minutes of college softball. Not to say anything wrong with college softball. It's a very exciting game. Uh, but U.S. soccer is, when they have these, they're going to want to clear an open window, as they should. It is the U.S. men's national team in a sport that people care about, and they're paying for it. And it does draw viewers. Mm-hmm. But so largely, this is going to mean for U.S. soccer that they are the international game that they are going to kind of lose the uh, the sales pull of being bundled with MLS, but that's going to strengthen their individual kind of bargaining rights is kind of what I'm taking from this. Yes. Uh, in other words, they also feel comfortable now that they can do it on their own. The audience is built. Uh, MLS got a boost from packaging it with the U.S. soccer, but MLS doesn't need that anymore. Even if the viewership is enough, the popularity not just amongst fans, but also the popularity amongst advertisers because of the demographic, the young, uh, urban, professional type of demographic that MLS generally attracts is very enticing to advertisers. And uh, the growth potential MLS is also why their franchise fees are really high. Through the Closed system really helps on that as well. You're not going to go, go down in the second tier of MLS because there is no second tier of MLS. So, And uh, as FC in Cincinnati has shown, you cannot get demoted to the USL. <laughs> no, you cannot. There's a whole discussion about that and how we feel about it is for another time. <laughs> uh, so that wraps up today's program. Let's talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing next week. We've got, of course, the CONCACAF semifinal against Honduras, a real game for the U.S. men's national team. That'll be Thursday at 6.30. And, of course, we're Central Time, so I'm speaking in Central Times here. And uh, the championship game, or third place game, should be championship game, that will be Sunday evening. Check your local listings for where and exactly what time. One thing then the CONCACAF uh, Nations League on Thursday we can expect is Christian Pulisic and Zach Steffen will start. Josh Sargent may not start because uh, Daryl DK, who got on loan to Barnsley and uh, the championship of English soccer, had a very exciting season. Just before we started recording, it was put out that Barnsley turned down his eight-figure transfer fee off of that loan. He's coming back to Orlando City. There is interest among European and English Premier League clubs for him. So we'll see if he plays, if he starts. He's got a lot on his plate and a lot to think about right now. So we'll see how that goes. And uh, also, we'll be talking about MLS giving an angry and deserved backhand across the face to Inter-Miami. Uh, Inter-Miami played a little loose with the books, let's say. I want to break that down a little bit more. Uh, and... Nobody worry. MLS says that David Beckham was not involved in any of this. Wink, wink. Of course. So that wraps up today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you uh, press follow on your podcast. we not on Apple Podcasts yet. Hopefully, by the time this actually gets published, it will be. It should happen very soon. We're on Spotify, Google Play, 
and uh, most other places that you can find it. We'll also be putting it up on our soccer-capital.com website very shortly as well for you all. And if you do want to reach us with any comments or suggestions, you can also reach us at soccercapital at gmail.com. And that's capital with an O-L. Thank you very much for listening. I am Mike Turner, your host, and producer Mason on the boards. And we'll see you all next time. Bye for now.